If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11 this morning. Luke chapter 11. As we begin this morning, I have to tell you that as we've been working our way through Luke, uh, we've come to one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And part of that reason, part of the reason why it's my favorite, why I love it so much is because, frankly, I need it so much. I just saw this week the results of a poll that was recently done that said of evangelical churchgoers, which means not just people who say that they're Christians, but those who are actively engaged in evangelical churches where the gospel is preached, who, who are there all the time, they spend less than three minutes a day on average in prayer, and that included saying grace at meals. That says to me that, that I am not alone in my need for a better prayer life. We have a real problem here in America. We have a desperate need for our prayerlessness to be remedied. And here's where a passage like this can help us. Here Jesus himself instructs his disciples on how they should pray. In fact, he instructs them after the pattern of his own praying, as we will see in just a few minutes. And it's a passage like this that helps us return to the basics, to the foundational level of what it means to have communion with God through his prayer. And so it should be a time of refreshing in our souls because we'll not only see that, that God expects prayer, that he commands it, that we need it, but that he invites us to pray because we so often fail to do what we need, that is, call out to him in prayer. And so he desires to woo us to himself, to show us his generosity, his affection, his desire for us to be in fellowship with him through prayer. How can we, how can we avoid or ignore that invitation of Almighty God to come into his presence and to be in fellowship with him? And yet we ignore it every time we skip over our prayer time. We end up in that three-minute number as those who do little more than say thanks for our food but enjoy real, no real fellowship with God. But Luke 11 can help us. For here, Jesus will not only show us the pattern for prayer, giving us direction for how we actually get started in talking to God, but also encouragements to pray as he reminds us that God is a God who loves to hear and answer prayer. These are the things we want to see this morning, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? May God bless the reading of His Word. One of the big themes throughout the Gospel of Luke is this idea of prayer. It's one of Luke's favorite topics. In fact, we see it not just in the Gospel of Luke, but we see it all through the book of Acts as well. People praying, uh, and, and one of the things that we see more than anything is Jesus praying in the Gospels. He prays more than anybody else. In fact, in Luke's Gospel especially, we see more recorded times of Jesus praying than in any other of the Gospels. And to the context of Him praying before others that we see Him giving this teaching on prayer. When his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus responds by saying, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, if we've grown up in church or we're familiar with the Bible, we, we've heard this before. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but we also might think it sounds a little different. It seems like it's missing something. In fact, someone was, was reading ahead and just this past week asked me, why is it different? Why is Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer different than Matthew's version? You see, it's so similar that we know it's the same prayer, but it's also different because it's missing some lines, and so we wonder, why has Luke left some things out? Well, the answer isn't that hard when we remember that Jesus was, among so many other things, an itinerant preacher. He would preach in one place for a while, and he would go somewhere else and preach. And he would go somewhere else, into another village, into another city, all the while preaching and preaching and preaching. And almost assuredly, he would preach some of the same things. But the Bible doesn't change. He's not kind of with new, with new ideas. And he's, he's going over the basics of what it means to love God and to follow him and to be his disciples. And we still see that same kind of thing today. In fact, just um, not that long ago, really just... Um, a couple of years ago, we had a really famous uh, speaker come and speak to our convention here in Michigan, and uh, it was interesting because he had been here about four years before, and when he got up to speak, he actually spoke the exact same message. He gave the same, the same sermon that he gave four years before. Now, thankfully, uh, he had tweaked it, and it was better the second time around. Um, so I won't tell you the guy's name, but uh, some of you know who that is. And uh, he's probably not listening to this, so I probably could tell you anyway. But um, the, the, the point is, um, preachers are, are going to, uh, to use the same kind of material. And we see Jesus doing the same thing. But what we have are two different settings. In Matthew's um, recording of this, we see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's, a, it's an open time of preaching and proclamation, which, have, which is really the original secret church, but a lot longer, went all day, as opposed to just a few hours at night. And one of the topics that was focused on was this topic of prayer. And what we see in there is Jesus giving, maybe for the first time, a description of what prayer is supposed to be. Now here the context is different. Here the disciples are one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. They've just heard him pray. What they've seen him hurt, what they've heard him do several times before, and they're like, man, our prayer lives stink, Jesus. You've got to tell us how to pray. Now here's the thing, you know, that they were at the Sermon on the Mount. They've already heard him give this at least once, and yet they've forgotten it. They did not hear it in such a way that they remembered it and are seeking to obey it. And so he gives it to them again. They know John the Baptist has taught his disciples some method for prayer, and now they recognize their own need, their own prayerlessness. 
Their prayers are not what they should be, and so they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's what Jesus does. He, he gives not a set form, like some kind of uh, mantra to, re, to pray verbatim over and over again, but an outline of priorities. In fact, one of the reasons that we know this is because he doesn't give the same prayer the same way in both times. It's virtually the same thing, and anything that's extra in Matthew is really just an elaboration of, of what's here in Luke. But I think Jesus is wanting to, to point out the fact it's not just you say these words over and over again. But rather, this is the outline. These are the priorities. These are the things that you focus on and in the order that you focus on them when you come before God in prayer. Now, initially, my plan was to do all of the 13 verses that we read. But by the time I got done covering in my notes just the, the first four, I only had one page left to talk about the parable and the encouragement. So I decided maybe we'll just save that for next week. Uh, it, it's probably important enough to spend that amount of time on. So what we want to see today is this, the priorities that Jesus teaches us about prayer. Priorities for how we come into fellowship with God and commune with Him through prayer. What are the things that we should be thinking? What are the things that we should be praying about? Here's what we see. First of all, we see that we need to remember God's grace. We need to remember God's grace Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Now, except when he is on the cross at the apex of bearing God's wrath for sinners, every other time we see Jesus praying in the Gospels, he calls out to God as Father. And that was a distinctly new way to pray. The fatherhood of God was all over the Old Testament, but rarely did any individual ever call out to God as Father, as my Father. But Jesus did. And in doing so, first of all, he revealed something of the glory of God as a triune being. Though one God, one being, he exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that hinted in the Old Testament and revealed in fullness in the New. As God the Son, it was perfectly natural for him to call out to God the Father as Father. But what is remarkable is that now Jesus is telling his disciples. Jesus is inviting them to address God in the same way. He, 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 is, he is inviting them on what he's going to explain later, and his apostles will explain as well, and that is, as Jesus' disciples, we have come to be adopted into God's family. Those who have faith in Christ are brought into his family and are given the right to call out to God as Father. It's a reflection of the new, intimate, and trusting relationship that we have with God through Christ. Now, why is it important to remember that grace of God's adoption as we begin our prayer? Because we are so very often at the very outset either to not pray or to pray wrongly. To not pray or to pray wrongly. And so Jesus says, but, but before you get started, stop and remember who you're going to. We're tempted not to pray because we think we're unworthy to pray. We're unworthy to come before God. There's no reason he would want to hear from us. I've sinned too much. But remember who he is if you've had faith in Christ. If you've turned from sin to trust in Jesus as your Savior, then God is not simply God. He's not less than that. But he's more than that. Now he's Father in him. On the other hand, we may be tempted to run too quickly into prayer. Uh, a pastor of another generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that we can so often be like children who rush into the room and begin speaking about whatever they want to speak about regardless of who else is talking and who's there and whether it's appropriate or not. And so he says we should instead pause. 
we should stop, as it were, and put our hands over our mouth and think for a minute, who are we going to? We're going to God our Father. Are the things that we're going to be asking for appropriate to ask for? Are we coming with the right demeanor, the right reverence, or are we going to be flippant and disregard the great privilege that it is to come before God in prayer, even as our Father? That's how Jesus tells us to start. He says, start by remembering, by remembering your relationship to God through me. Remember God's grace and adopting you into his family, of canceling out your debt of sins and making you his child. Call out to God as Father. But then secondly, secondly, Jesus shows us the priority of focusing on God's glory. We should focus on God's glory. Like his other prayers, Jesus teaches that the prayer of his disciples should be God-centered. We should begin with God and his glory, not us and our desires. Now, in a minute, we're going to see God cares about our needs. He cares about what we need and about our desires, and, 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 and desires give good gifts to us. But that's not where we start. That's not where we start. In fact, throughout the entirety of our prayer, our focus is on bringing glory to God. And so chief on our mental list of things to pray for, Jesus says we begin with this request, hallowed be your name. Now, if you were a kid growing up in church and you heard hallowed be your name from the scriptures, you probably misheard that several times like I did. And you wondered, how is is God's name made hollow? What does that even mean? It's some rare spiritual thing that his name is hollow. I don't know what that meant. Or herald. Some people, uh, one of my friends misheard it and said, why is his name here? Well, that's not, what it, that's not any of that stuff. Hallowed means to make holy. And so to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, it is that your name might be seen as holy. We're not asking God to be more holy. God can be more holy. He is, he is holy in part of his uh, complete perfections of his character. He's never going to be more holy in his being. But there are lots of people who don't think he's holy. You will, you will go home this afternoon and you will watch television. You will see commercials on the Super Bowl and, hear, and, and perhaps hear players on microphones and they will take the name of the Lord God in vain because they don't think he's holy. They think it's just a word that can be used flippantly. But what we're praying for is that God's reputation would be great, that his name would be recognized as holy above all things. Think about praying that and asking in your own life, how is God's name being made holy? I mean, what what better way could, could God be seen as holy than through the lens of his people and their life in this world? How are we living? How are we doing? Are our lives, is our thinking, the way that we're treating our spouses or raising our kids, do people look at us and think, God is a holy God? If not, then in praying for God's glory and his name to be hallowed, we have to start with where we're at and confess some sin and ask him to be at work to change that. But then Jesus also says that we should pray, as we think about God's glory, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? I mean, after all, doesn't he already rule everything? Well, there's a sense in which that's true. Psalm Psalm 10, verse 16 says, the Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations perish from from his land. Later in Psalm 103, 19, we're told the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Likewise, in Psalm 145, the psalmist calls out to God saying, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Because God is sovereign, there's a sense in which his rule is supreme and unchanging. Nothing happens apart from his will. 
But there's another sense in which he allows the nations to go their way. He does not exercise the totality of his rule at all times. And therefore we see sinful men and women rebelling and rejecting his kingdom, his reign over their lives. They seek to go their own way and leave in their wake a path of human destruction. And so in calling and praying, God, may your kingdom come, we are praying that God's rule would be established in all things. What does that mean? Well, in part it means this is not something to take lightly when we pray. We're praying for something massive to happen when we pray, God, your kingdom come. We're praying that God would take away all of our own sinful desires and the vain things that we hold on to so tightly. We're asking God to change others in a decisive way so that He would be manifested in their lives. We're praying for all of our little kingdoms to pass away as God's kingdom is established. We are praying that we would be bold enough and courageous enough and have faith in God enough to stand against the world as it exists in enmity with God. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism is surely right when it asks, well, what are we praying in this petition, your kingdom come? And the authors write this, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Are we thinking that way when we pray? Jesus says this should be of first importance. This should be on a high priority in the way that we pray, the kind of request that we ask. When we come before God our Father, we're praying that His name would be, would be made known as holy, both in our lives and in the world, and that His kingdom, His kingdom would be established. Not ours, not, not our desires, not our will be done, but His will be done, His kingdom brought into greater clarity in this world, that all things would be subsumed under His reign. Those are some serious priorities and require some serious reflection of our lives and our prayers. Those things are directed towards God. But then Jesus changes the emphasis, and now He says, don't just pray God Godwardly. Don't just pray thinking about, about uh, things that should happen because of God's glory. Also now look at yourself and those around you and pray with a horizontal focus. Pray with a focus on, on the needs of yourself and others. And so here, the third priority we see, if we were to pray as Jesus' disciples, we are to depend on God's care. We are to depend on God's care. Jesus says we are to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Now when I think about daily bread, when I think about today's bread... I mean, I don't know about you, but maybe some of you are great and you bake your bread every day. Uh, good on you, but I go to Kroger. And for a dollar, I get a loaf of bread. So when I'm thinking, pray for daily bread, I got this, God. I don't need your help here. I, I, I'm okay getting bread by myself. But first of all, we have to remember that that's not the way it was in Jesus' day. You're, you're talking about a place where you didn't just go to the supermarket and pick up a, a cheap loaf of bread like we do today. A day's wage was just about uh, enough to cover that day's expenses. So you didn't have people saving vast amounts of money. Basically, you worked a day, and that provided for your, for your food for the next day. So suddenly now, daily bread seems to make a lot more sense. And more than that, it was largely an agrarian society. You have drought one year, you have a bad crop one year. It could be devastating for the people in that area. What Jesus is giving here is not just this kind of quaint, requests, this empty rhetoric, this idea of daily bread. No, it, it's, a, it's an important lesson, not only for his disciples, but also for us, because it stands as a symbol 
for all the things that are most necessary in life. This is the reason why Jesus didn't say, and ask your heavenly father daily for a blueberry scone. I mean, blueberry scone's nice. goes great with a cup of coffee, but I don't need a blueberry scone. If I don't have bread to eat, I'm going to die. If I don't have something basic like just elementary food, and and, in other parts of the world it might be pray for a cup of rice or something like that. If I don't have something basic to sustain me, I'm going to die. So Jesus is teaching us we need to distinguish between our wants and our needs. We need to be able to distinguish between things that would be nice, things that would make our lives convenient, and the things that we really need to live and exist and serve Him in this world. By telling Him to pray daily for these things, Jesus wants His disciples also to live in such a way that they show that they depend on God for everything. If daily we are asking for our bread, then we are showing that daily we are dependent upon God. We are acknowledging that everything that we have is ultimately coming from His hand of blessing. And so we never say, no, I got this. I sit down with my peanut butter and my jelly and my bread and I say, God, I thank you that this has come from your hand. Yeah, I got a paycheck, but why did I get that paycheck? Because you've given me life and breath and health and I've been able to go and put in a day's work and now I'm able to sit and have even this simple sandwich because you have given it to me. And God, if you, have not, if you had not given it to me, I couldn't have done it on my own. I am wholly dependent upon you, God, for all of my needs. But there's something even more important than physical needs. Jesus goes on and says, we ought to pray and ask God to forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, what Jesus is speaking of here is not the kind of initial legal forgiveness that God extends to all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That, that, is, that is real, we're thankful for that. The Bible calls that justification. That when we turn away from our sins, when we turn away from the, our life and, our, and our, our path that is headed to a just judgment under God's wrath, and we see Christ as the only Savior, the only mediator that's going to make it possible for us to have forgiveness and life with God, that He justifies us. He considers the, the judgment that we deserve already put on Christ at the cross. And His righteous life is counted towards us. So we have a a legal, declared, total forgiveness of all of our sins. And we rejoice in that. But what Jesus is saying here is something different. What He's saying is something that Paul would say, having experienced God's grace, do we go on sinning now? He says, heavens, no. We don't do that. We, we, We now realize we have come into this relationship with God as Father. And so now there is an ongoing relational forgiveness that is required, not for salvation, but for the health of our communion with God. All of us have had relationships, friendships that have hit a rough patch. It's because we've not fulfilled a promise or because we've said something we shouldn't have said. Whatever the issue is, the relationship has become strained. We're still friends, but we're not really good friends. We're not hanging out. We're not going to the movies together. We're not, we're not texting back and forth stupid pictures that we found on Facebook. Instead, what we need to do is reconcile. One of us needs to take the initiative to say, you know, I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I'm sorry for, for, for what I did. Will you forgive me? And the other needs to extend forgiveness. And then the relationship begins to, to come back together again. And it's no less true than with God. Once we have passed from death to life, once we've been transferred from the the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His Son and adopted into His family, we are His forever. There's no going back. We, we, we We don't start as unsaved, move to saved, and then hop back and forth depending on how good of a life we live each day. 
He says, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. But God makes us alive in Christ, never to die again. But here's the thing. Paul can also say that by all the sinfulness of our lives, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can offend Him. And what we need to do is go before Him and make it right. We need to ask God to forgive us that our communion, our fellowship with Him might be sweet as it once was. And what Jesus says is, this is the mark of those who themselves have already experienced that initial forgiveness and are continuing to forgive others. This is, this is how we know, to some measure, whether or not we're dealing with our sin is how well we deal with the sin of others. The, the forgiveness that God is offering here is not conditional. What Jesus is saying is, is, here's the example of one who is continually, continually forgiving those who have offended them. They're also asking God to forgive them for their continual sins. At the, at the, at the beginning of each day, I think to myself, this is going to be a good day. I, I open my Bible and I read and I pray and I get ready to go. And then guess what? Life gets in the way. I should have stayed in the study. Life gets in the way and suddenly I'm having thoughts of anger. I, I, I'm getting upset because I didn't get my way or, or all, any, any number of things that happen. I get to the end of the day and I say, well, God, I kind of blew it. And I'm sorry for not hallowing your name. I'm sorry for frustrating the, the breaking in of your kingdom among your people. God, please forgive me. And suddenly that, that fellowship is restored, assuming I'm sincere. And you can always tell the person who's not doing that because they get so easily offended when someone sins against them and they're so slow to offer forgiveness. They bear grudges. They are bitter. And they, 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 they never want to have anything to do with that person again. They tend to be grumpy people. Well, what's the problem? The problem is they're not dealing with their sin with God. And therefore they, they are not so captivated by grace that they realize that a God of infinite holiness, of infinite glory, if he can condescend to forgive stupid humans like us, then who am I not to extend forgiveness and forgive others as well? That they haven't learned that lesson. And so Jesus says, make it a priority. Make it a priority to depend on God's spiritual care as much as his physical care. Go before him and, and pray, pray seeking forgiveness for your sins. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to depend on his care for forgiveness. We also need to depend on his care when we experience temptation. That's why Jesus says that we should pray, lead us not into temptation. We should be seeking not just on the back end to say, oops, I, missed, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, but on the front end to avoid those things. To see sin coming down the road and say, no, I'm, I'm going the other way. I'm going to take, take the long route if I can avoid the temptation. And we need God's help in this. We need to depend on Him to see us through that temptation. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be inactive. That doesn't, need to, that doesn't mean that we say, oh, temptation, that's right, God will take care of me, and we just dive in and assume we're going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. A Baptist minister named F.M. Borum, several decades ago, was writing in his journal as he traveled on an evangelistic tour through the Australian bush. He said, well, they were driving across the wilderness, they met a, a man who had just seen a 15-foot-long sleeping python. So after their speaking engagement, on their way back, they said, let's find that snake. Oh, we've never seen a python before. I mean, we're in England. They have pythons there. Let's go check it out. And they find this thing. And he says, but it's just asleep. It's just moving. Nobody, I mean, that's not fun. We want to see the snake move. So Borum says they began to poke it. They began to tickle it. They got a, a stick and lifted up its head. 
And then he says this in his journal, quote, we had carried our senseless liberties too far. The horrid creature woke up not gradually, but suddenly and turned savagely upon us. We scurried to the car as quickly as our legs would carry us, and when, on gaining that welcome retreat, we slammed the door behind us, the reptile already had its head upon the running board. For many nights after this adventure, we awoke in a cold perspiration, living once more through those tense and terrifying seconds, and steadfastly resolved in the future to let sleeping dogs and other things lie. Some of you are going to have nightmares about that tonight, aren't you? We cannot avoid temptation in this life. We live in a sinful, fallen world, and not only do we have a spiritual enemy who wants us to fall, but our own hearts wrestle with sin. It is not something we should play around with. It is not something that we should, we should dare ourselves to see if we are of spiritual material enough to resist. Instead, we should pray that God would strengthen us to see it and run that he would help lead us away from temptation and not into it. That's, what, that's part of trusting God's care for our lives. Not just the physical needs, but our spiritual cares as well. The final priority that Jesus tells us is not something that really shows up specifically in any one phrase, but in every phrase of this prayer. Here we see that Jesus teaches that we should love God's church. That we should love God's church. This is perhaps the most overlooked aspect of the Lord's Prayer, but it's also probably the most obvious if we would open our eyes to see it. Notice Jesus does not say that we should pray, My Father in heaven. That's not to say that we don't enjoy a one-on-one, individual, personal relationship with God, but instead, Jesus reminds us that as an individual saved by grace, we are saved into the community of faith. So the entire prayer is cast not in singular, but in plural terms. Give us our daily bread. Forgive our sins. Those indebted to us, lead us not into temptation. Jesus expects that as his disciples, as his believers, that we're not just looking out for ourselves. We're not just looking out for number one, but that we are concerned for the entirety of the the group, the gathering of his people, of the disciples, of the church. This is why Paul will say in Ephesians 6 that we ought to pray for all the saints. Now, don't walk away and think, okay, the Lord's Prayer is not about me. It is about you. But it's not just about you. You you, you don't think through this just in terms of yourself. You think through this in terms of the collective body. You, You love God's people enough to pray for them in the same way that you would pray for yourselves. Wayne Mack is probably one of the most underappreciated Bible teachers today. Every time I, I read one of his books, I just think, why is this guy not known more? Uh, he's, he's in his 70s still, and he splits his time half a year teaching in a Bible college in South Africa and the other half in a Bible college out in Iowa, I think. He teaches theology and pastoral ministry and biblical counseling and so many things. He's written dozens and dozens of books on all kinds of topics. He's a real treasure to God's people. And I would commend anything that he's written to you. In fact, uh, if you are thinking about getting married and you're going to have me do the ceremony, we're going to do pre-counseling, you're going to read one of his books with me on preparing for marriage God's way. But in one of those books, he talks about a trip that he took, a ministry trip through Europe and the Middle East. Here's what he says. I visited missionaries, preached at Bible colleges, and saw many biblical sites in the Holy Land. Though I enjoyed the fellowship with dear friends and the opportunity of ministry, I missed my family every day. At the end of the trip, we were scheduled to spend some time in England, but instead, I changed my ticket because I wanted to get home. I longed to be with my family. 
And that has been true all of my life. And listen to what he says. We ought to, be, we ought to long to be with God's family as well. I wonder if we feel that way. I wonder if we have that same desire to be together in God's presence, to be face-to-face, to enjoy fellowship in the community that, that we've been called to. The Bible's clear that we should be that way, but I wonder when, when Wednesday or Thursday rolls around if we're thinking, man, I just wish Sunday would hurry up and get here. I want to be with those people, man. I, I want to be with them. I want to see them. I wonder if those kinds of feelings lead us to be together more than just one day a week. Is Sunday just enough for us? Do we think, man, I need to have coffee with somebody. I need to get together. I need to do something more than just, than just the Sunday morning thing. It doesn't lead us to pray for one another in deep and prioritized ways like we see here in the Lord's Prayer. One of the things that I have loved about our, our online um, kind of church-specific social site that the table is is the the speed and um, I guess just the speed. I was going to say rapidity, but it's the same thing. Just how quickly I can get a pre-request from from one of you and be praying for it and see other people praying for it. I mean that that encourages me, both as a Christian and as a pastor. But you know, number one, we've got some members that don't have internet; they're not on there, and we've got others not because I'm trying to check up on you guys, but. As far as I can tell, you're not even seeing the request. I I never see your name come up in the list of praying for those things. I I don't know why that is. I'm not trying to to, to poke at you there, just saying not everybody's seeing those requests, not everybody's praying. And it just makes me wonder, what are we praying for during the week? Are we thinking of one another and praying for one another? Because even as good as the table is, it's not sufficient. If we're just praying for people when emergencies come up or, or, or when bad situations come up, that's not enough because, frankly, none of those things are really found here. You can have application of these things in those circumstances. So when an emergency comes up, you can be praying, God, display your kingdom in this. We, we know this is terrible and people are hurting, but God, allow the gospel to go forth that people might be brought into your kingdom. Sustain them daily with, with what they need so that they, this, this, this sorrow does not lead them into temptation, to feel either cold towards you or hateful towards others. We can apply these priorities here, but my point is there should be, because of the deep love and affection we should feel for one another, an overflow, an abundance of praying for one another. More than just happens on the table, more than just what happens on Saturday mornings, more than just what happens when we gather together here. This is the priority that Jesus is teaching. We are coming together to our Father this morning. Together, here, as we sit, as we speak to one another, as we think of one another, we want God's name to be hallowed. We want it. We desire His kingdom to come. We are calling forth for our daily bread. We are seeking His face that we might be forgiven of our sins and not be led into temptation. But this is just an hour a week. Are we doing more than that? Is, is the priority of loving God's people there? These are the priorities that should mark our prayers when we pray, remembering God's grace, focusing on God's glory, depending on God's care, and loving God's church. And as you seek to follow these instructions and pray according to those priorities, perhaps even this morning you feel like, I I failed in these things. I I fail miserably in these things, and, 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 and I don't know what to do. Well, begin by seeing. Despite what some people say, well, it's not the Lord's Prayer, it's a model prayer. No, it's the Lord's Prayer for this reason alone. Jesus fulfills 
every single request that is being made here. We only call on God as Father because of the saving work of Jesus. In John 14, he says, No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other Savior. There's there's no other mountain pathway to climb to get to the top where God is there welcoming you as a Father. No. Either you go through Christ or He is God the judge. But if you go through Christ, if anyone goes through Christ, then He is God your Father. As we seek the hallowing of God's name, remember that Jesus came, Mark chapter 1, as the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One in whose image we are being shaped by God's Spirit. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, remember that Jesus told His disciples in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because the King Himself is here. I have come. It's my kingdom that I am establishing. When we pray for our daily bread, we remember Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never, th- shall never thirst. In Jesus we find the daily nourishment we need for our souls. And finally, finally, Jesus is the answer to our prayer for forgiveness. Jesus said that because of his saving work on the cross, because of his glorious resurrection, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's not just faith in Jesus by which we have once redemption, once forgiveness, but ongoing forgiveness of our sins. The Lord's Prayer is not just a Sunday school thing. It's not just something we pull out every once in a while to feel nostalgic. It's not just something we say maybe at funerals or at weddings. This is the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that they might experience deep and abiding communion with God himself and find all of their needs met by his generous hand. In the end, this is a prayer that finds its fullest and final answer, seeing all of our needs supremely met in the finished saving work of Jesus. For all those reasons, may we be a people of prayer, marked by the priorities that Jesus shows us here. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would, as your word promises, give us faith by hearing your word God, give us faith to believe that these things are true. Give us faith, God, to call out to you as our Father, believing that you desire these good things in our life. Father, allow us to believe in Jesus, that we might know you and be known by you, that we might have forgiveness and life with you, that we might have an abiding fellowship through him. God, we ask all these things, both for our good, but supremely for your glory that your name might be magnified in our midst. Amen.